Well, yeah, we're, uh, we're really glad that you're here. So uh, you've met me, you've met Seth. In the middle here is Matthew Brazelton. Uh, Matthew uh, does a lot of different stuff here. And the three of us are the point team for our, uh, for our church. That's just what we call it right now. The name has changed over the years, but basically that means we're kind of the senior staff. Uh, everyone else that's on staff reports to us. We're also part of the elder team. We have an elder group here of nine, uh, nine guys, uh, four of whom are on staff, five of whom are not. And uh, so we are doing this thing called Ask Anything. So there's a number on the screen uh, there in the kind of bottom right, if you can see that, uh, that 928 number. Uh, this a day is going to go as well as the questions you ask, okay? So if you ever thought, man, I wish they would talk about this, this is your chance. So uh, what we'd love to do, have you do is just text in questions that you have uh, to that number on the screen. And uh, we've got one of our pastors that is collecting those and is going to try to help us do as many of them as we can. Um, so that's what we're doing. I want to share a couple of just preliminary ideas uh, with us. The first one just comes from this passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, it, it's this phrase that Paul uses in verse 3 where he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. One of the things we want to mention whenever we do something like this is that the whole Bible is inspired by God, breathed out by God, we believe all the Bible is God's word. It's all equally inspired. It's not all equally important. And you go, that doesn't sound right. Well, that's what Paul says. <laughs> this is of first importance. There's something that's of first importance, which is that Christ died for our sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. And he's coming back again. That's the message of the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And so the, the closer that any of the questions or answers that we give relate to that, the more important it is. The further away we get from that, the less important it is. And so we're going to talk about some things today that might fall in this of first importance category. Uh, there might be other things that are kind of, you know, secondary or tertiary is the, uh, the other word for that. So uh, we'd love to uh, just kind of keep that in mind. The, the second thing is we want this to begin the conversation, not end it. Right? So if you have a question that you've been dying to ask and we answer it in a way that does not meet your satisfaction... Uh, we would love to continue to talk about it. We don't want you to storm out. We won't want you to just be ticked off. Uh, we'd love to have this begin the conversation, not end it. And, and in, in that whole space, we'd also just ask that you would give us some grace. Uh, we truly, we do not know what's coming. No, no questions are planted. Uh, we haven't said, hey, make sure they ask this. You know, make sure you put this in there. None of that. So we don't know what's coming. Um, and Hopefully between the three of us, we can come up with something coherent, but we're also trying to be kind of snappy so that we don't, you know, so we can answer as many questions as, as we possibly can. So uh, that's what we're trying to do. Um, you, you guys in? We good? You ready? Okay, well, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord's help. Uh, Matthew, would you pray for us? Yeah, absolutely. God, thanks for um, just that beautiful time of worship. Uh, my heart was nourished and encouraged, and I'm thankful for it. Um, thanks for this community and what you're building here. Lord, we want to look more like Jesus uh, every time we spend time with you and spend time together. And so we pray that we'd, we'd walk out these doors a little bit more like you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, here we go. First question is, how do we encourage church membership in 2023, pursuing a contributor culture and avoiding a consumer mindset? Wow. There we go. I, we didn't plant that. I didn't plant that, I promise. Uh, how do we encourage church membership in 2023 pursuing a contributor culture and avoiding a consumer mindset? So there's probably three pieces of that question. Uh, maybe one of you can jump in on one of these. There's church membership, kind of what is that? 
what's a, what would a contributor culture be? What would a consumer mindset be? Um, do you want to start that, Brazel? You can yeah, I think, um, how do we encourage, so I'll take the first part. How do we encourage church membership? I think that church membership comes, uh, the desire for church membership comes best out of vision. So hopefully um, you'll hear some vision that you want to be a part of and you'll go, how do I sign up? Um, so I think, I think that's, at least in a, in a healthy organization, that's, that's the way we would want to encourage church membership. I think that, uh, so consumption is not bad, right? Uh, feasting on the word and, and receiving uh, good leadership and, and music and enjoying it and praising and, and the, like the con a consumer mindset, I think, is this idea that I'm going to get what I want from this church and get what I want from that church. And if I like it, I'll go to it. And if it's kind of like the Burger King church, have it your way type thing, this idea of church as dispenser of religious goods and services that you kind of tip on afterwards versus like a body that's designed to be building one another up and encouraging each other. So I think the main way that uh, we encourage a, con a culture of contribution rather than like a consumer mindset is trying to awaken or help everybody in this room and then the other services see and sense that you have something to contribute and so contribute it. And so that looks like serving, using gifts, allowing yourself be, to be known in community so that you're um, uh, connecting through meaningful, vulnerable, um, human uh, fellowship uh, is, a, is a big part of that. I think that begins by seeing yourself as a part of a community that you contribute to. Uh, and I do think that one of the ways we avoid the consumer mindset is like when we have the instinct to like want to do the uh, seeing the pastors or the staff as like customer service representatives that you like send complaints to to like <laughs> change the the thing kind of going oh this is me being swept up into Amazon culture and uh, this is this is a family like I think about like in, in my family growing up like everyone had chores someone cooked someone cleaned someone set the table um, someone was the coordinator someone invite someone set the invite out you know and I think it's a joke in my family that if you want to know what's going on you ask Samantha who's one of my sisters you know she's you know there's the person who's in the know and so this idea that versus you go out to, de to eat and you pay someone who sets the table and someone to clean and someone to do all your stuff for you. And so trying to see church as family gathering, not like restaurant experience, trying to change that paradigm. And I do think that is something we're trying to uh, even lean towards that. I know that a lot of you like come to the church because you like, like the teaching or you like the music or it's the kids program is good. And I think that's a good place to start, but it's not a good place to land hmm. going. Let's, let's start from, I like this to, I contribute to this, um, either like in my time, my talent, my treasure, uh, my relationship, my person. Uh, and I think that's, so like the initial consumption instinct of, I like this, I want more of it is good, but then you move into the family instinct. And so I hope that a lot of people in our church make that next step to seeing this as a family they're contributing to rather than a, a live YouTube clip that they get to witness being filmed in person. <laughs> so I think that shift is a big yeah. deal. Yeah, one of my favorite things that happens is when people shift from saying your church to our church, when they make that verbal shift, you, you go, okay, something's different. I feel like a contributor now. Um, yeah, I, I mean, one of the things I, I just would contribute to this conversation is um, there's this reality where like we have people who are covenant members, which means they've gone through a process to say, I want to be part of this church. I want to contribute. I want to be an owner. I want to be held accountable. Um, I, like, I'm bought in. I'm a covenant member. Then there's folks who, in many ways, kind of function like covenant members, right? They're serving a lot. They're giving. They're contributing. But they haven't gone through kind of more the, the step to officialize that. 
um, if you will. And then there's people kind of on the edges. And so if you're more on the edges, I'd, I'd encourage you to become more of a participant. And if you're a participant, I'd encourage you to become a member. And, uh, and we do have some people who are covenant members where at some point they were, you know, kind of all in on, I'm going to be in community and I'm going to serve and I'm going to use my gifts. And some members have, have, I think, started to become kind of members in name only. And so if you're in that space, you know, this would be a good year to re-engage and to re-up. But yeah, I think this whole idea of, I mean, part of it is church is just more fun when you know people, when you're bought in, when you uh, get to experience uh, the community of the life together. So, all right, let's, uh, let's go to the next one. How do we know if God is talking to us or if we are influencing our own thoughts and minds? I can start us out. Great. So uh, throughout the history of the church, God has uh, moved his people in three ways. So uh, through the scriptures, through the spirit, and through the community. And you need all three working together. So uh, when you lose one of those things, you become a cult. The scriptures, the spirit, the community. And the community. So you, you, uh, if you feel like you've heard a word from the Lord and no one else has heard it that are also filled with the Spirit, and in fact, people would push against it, then you should be concerned. Um, if you feel like you've heard a word from the Lord that's in direct contradiction to the Scriptures, you should be concerned. Um, if someone else comes to you and says, I've heard a word from the Lord, but you haven't heard it from the Spirit or from the Scriptures, that's, that should cause concern. But in an ideal kind of situation, all three pieces are working together to push on you. Um, it, it can make us uncomfortable at times. Um, but uh, that's kind of how it, how it works together in my mind. That's great. Well done. All right. What has been the biggest encouragement to your personal faith this year? Um, I'll go first. Um, for me, it has been, um, I, uh, and I mentioned this in the message that I recorded for Christmas week or whatever we just had. Um, but, uh, two years ago, um, I did a message where I asked about how to get ready for the new year. And the question was, how are you going to connect with God? And through that, it felt like the Lord was inviting me to say, Hey Luke, yeah, how are you, how are we going to connect this year? And so, um, the biggest encouragement to my faith was just time with the Lord, um, having time to hear from God through the scriptures, to reflect on it, um, to pray, um, to just enjoy time with the Lord in the morning, um, in a much more consistent and enjoyable experience than I've ever had. Um, so that probably, I mean, that was the, the biggest encouragement to my faith was just enjoying the presence of God. Like he really, he's really great. And uh, sometimes you hear his voice and it's like, whoa. And sometimes you're like, Lord, I'm not sure where you are. But, but the gathering with him was really sweet. I think for me, you probably could all guess this. If you listen to my sermons, it's been uh, being a dad. I think seeing my three-year-old and his wonder and joy and development and process and in even experiencing my relationship with him through the like awareness that the main metaphor that God gives me as far as my relationship to him is that I'm his son and he's my father. Hmm. And so even my own fatherly joy as like teaching me about the father in heaven's joy for me as his son. And cause I tend to be a little more like cool, calculated, like, um, God really? as God as coach, <laughs> God as coach, you know, like, like he's, he's calling plays, he's running things and versus kind of like the, the warmth familial mm. thing. And so I think I've been learning a lot about the warmth of God towards me through uh, being a dad. And you're a good dad, brother. Thank it's you. It's fun to watch you with them. Yeah, you are. Um, 
this, so just speaking out of, this is an autobiographical answer because yeah. it's a question personally. Yeah, this has been a hard year for me. Um, it, we we just, we took on a lot as a family and I think we took on a little bit more than I think we anticipated. And so um, I'd say the biggest encouragement is just that when, I, when I'm empty, the Lord still sustains me. Mm. So uh, one of the verses, I was trying to look up the address. One of the verses I've been working on memorizing that I can't remember the address of. <laughs> Uh, um, is just talks about the Lord's uh, abundance. So it's uh, it's Psalm thirty something. But um, uh, if you feast on the abundance of your house, uh, it talks about the river of God's delights, and in Him is the fountain of life. And in His light do we see light. And just this idea of God doesn't run out when I do. Um, so that's been an encouragement this this year. So I think this might encourage some folks, even though you're struggling to remember it. You. You have a kind of a practice. I don't know how formal it is for you, but you kind of find a psalm yeah. and you work on memorizing it and you just kind of camp there for sometimes months. Yeah. And so not that that's the only thing you do, but will you yeah, talk yeah. about that? So part of, part of my kind of spiritual rhythm is I, I always am reading through the psalms and then I'm always reading through the gospels because I feel like Jesus is like a big part of this thing. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I'll go other places in scripture as well. But as I work through the psalms, I just kind of stay in a psalm until I feel like the spirit releases me to go to the next psalm. And so I've been, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the number, but I've, I just have my bookmark in my Bible and yeah. I've been meditating on... Uh, on this psalm, and I just feel like I, I still need to feast on the abundance of God's house. I need to believe that that's true. And so, and then, yeah, if there's something that really resonates, I'll I'll try to memorize it so I can think about it throughout the day without having to open my Bible. So you stay there till the Spirit releases you to move on. What is that like? Uh, that kind of relates to that question we got a minute ago. But how do you know you're hearing the Lord's voice versus something? Yeah, like how do you know when you're full when you eat a meal? It's kind of like. I'm full. Yeah. I'm going to move on now. Yeah. I'm not full yet on this one. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, what a vision for, for Bible engagement is what if instead of reading the Bible to get through it, like, like you're in the car headed to a game eating fast food. What if you engage the Bible to get full? I love that. Thanks, man. All right, next question. All right, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, why should we try to live healthy physically if our bodies will be redeemed and glorified in the new creation anyway? Uh, that's a good question. And uh, Seth, you've done a lot of work on the body. I saw a great tweet that you actually put out the other day about if you want to have a healthier, stronger body this year, here's a couple things to think about. So why don't you start? So the baseline of our experience in the world is rooted in our bodies, that God gave us bodies. Uh, that our maleness and our femaleness, even like our, the sexed nature of our bodies, the earthenness of them, that in many ways the way the, the Genesis account goes is that, that there was a body and then God added the soul to the body. And that like, so the body is actually make more basic to our person in our existence. It's our bodies that separate us from one another. Like the reason I know that I'm Seth and not Matthew is my body and its history and where it's been and uh, the household it grew up in and its memories and how it's contained within there. Uh, we always are praying with our bodies, our minds, our bodies. We sing with our bodies, our vocal cords, our lungs. We serve with our bodies, our hands, our legs, our feet. Uh, in many ways, uh, what I've been encouraging people lately, like the reason we try to be physically 
fit and healthy and active is because we want to play with our great grandkids if we are privileged enough to make it there. Uh, I see my grandma who's 89 carrying my three-year-old up the stairs holding him overhead and the investment that she's made in her physical well-being by continuing to do chores and yard work and climb stairs and do stuff and and the multi-generational blessing that creates. Uh, obviously, not everyone gets to go to nine, 89. A lot of people who go to 89 wish they would have made it to 88, you know, because it's <laughs> can be tough. Uh, and there isn't like a point at which you can overinvest in physical health. Like I think about being a professional athlete is actually decidedly non-healthy. You're actually destroying your body when you're being a professional athlete. You watch like a retired football player hobbling around and uh, so if, especially like if you're like maybe a police officer or fireman, there can be a way in which you actually, um, in the name of serving others, you can like destroy your body. And so the, the, it's a real privilege to have a good body. I also think fundamental to our emotional well-being is our physical well-being, to be present to people, to have attention span, to listen, to hear, to be emotionally affected by them is an embodied experience. So for our nervous systems to even be able to tolerate other people's suffering and pain, uh, Christ calls us to suffer with, to have compassion, which is a bodily experience. And if you haven't slept well, like I remember when Jay was born, I took a couple weeks off and I came back and was doing counseling and I hadn't slept in like a couple weeks and people were telling me about their pain and their sorrows and I was just had nothing. I couldn't even like weep with those who weep. And so after Olivia was born, I took months off of counseling. I was like, and then like the phrase I had was no experience of me is better than a bad experience of me. And just, I, I do feel like having like being well-fed, well-rested, physically present to people is one of our best gifts to have a transformed, transforming presence. And I think the ability to like recreate and enjoy creation requires uh, in many ways, like uh, some measure of investment in our bodies. Uh, we're not meant to just kind of be brains on a stick. Uh, and so this, our bodies will be redeemed in new creation. We'll enjoy those things unlimited. But in the here and now, we're still called to be stewards of what God has given us. Well done. All right. Which of the prevalent eschatological views, premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial, do you believe or find most compelling and briefly why? I got a text about this yesterday. It was actually from... Uh, brother over there, he said, we can talk about pan-millennialism, which means it'll all pan out in the end. Don't worry about it. <laughs> all right. So let's just define a couple terms for folks that, you know, so one would be eschatological, right? The eschaton and eschatology is this especially study of the end, um, including, you know, things that are still to come and, uh, you know, the new heavens, and the new earth. There's these three, uh, dominant views throughout church history of premillennial, uh, which you could even distinguish between classic or historic premillennial and dispensational premillennial. Uh, you have postmillennial and amillennial. So premillennial is the idea that the Lord will return um, and then reign for a millennium for a thousand years. That there, He'll return and there will be a literal thousand year Jesus is king on earth uh, before the final judgment. That's premillennial. And that tends to come from a more literal reading of Revelation, that yep. passage in Revelation. Yep. Postmillennial is uh, the church is going to be so vibrant and revived and going to do so much amazing stuff that there's going to be a thousand years of amazing glory uh, that the church has ushered in, and then Jesus will come. I don't like that one. Uh, so I'll Vir just tell you where I'm at. Virtually that. nobody's held that view since World War II. I mean, there are some people, yeah. but a lot of 
there are a lot of post mill folks, and then World War II happened, and now there's like <laughs> maybe one percent of yeah. It's kind of like people. Do you see everything getting better? Not yet. Anyway, and then amillennial would be to say um, that the millennium, this uh, thousand-year reign of Christ, is not intended to be read as a literal thousand-year reign, but that Jesus is reigning now since he was raised, and he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, and um, that at some point he'll return, and um, so that's a kind of overview of that. So, you gave a thumbs up on amillennial. Yeah. Can I just say, I think when you study this stuff, and I haven't studied it extensively, I have done a decent amount of reading on it. Um, it's so interesting how um, the, the, the majority view in the church is dependent upon cultural and historical context. So depending on what sort of environment you're living in and living through, that, that shapes your, your view on this a ton. So before uh, the Civil War, most American Christians were post-millennial. They thought this is the new promised land and we are ushering in the kingdom of God and we're like, we're doing it. Then the Civil War happened and everybody looked around and saw death and carnage and over half a million people killed and they thought this can't be the path. We'll, we'll reinterpret this stuff and, and see more of a pre-millennial view, which is it's all going to go really, really bad, and then Jesus is going to come back and fix it. This amillennial view is, is a little bit, um, I, I, I prefer it, but, it, it, you know, that's fine. Um, but I, I think what I would just say is, like, we live in a, in a cultural moment. We have experiences of, through our families and through our nation and through our world, and that shapes the way that we read the scriptures a ton. So when you come at this conversation, we talked about uh, the spirit and the scriptures and the community. The community that I would encourage us to, to read and benefit from is like the global and historical community of, of the church, which means you got to read people who were thinking about this a thousand years ago, as well as people who are thinking about it today. Um, and as you do that, as I've done a little bit of that, I've realized like these are these are tough, these are tough conversations, and it's not blatantly obvious, in my opinion. Yeah, amillennial has been the historic dominant view. It's probably the view I'm most uh, inclined towards. Uh, this, uh, like in in First John, John writes about how many antichrists have come, as though like the monsters in the Book of Revelation uh, are always occurring and reoccurring throughout world history. Uh, However, Polycarp, who's a second descendant, a second generation disciple of John who wrote Revelation, was a premillennial guy, so I'm tempted that direction too for those historical reasons. Yeah, so to read the passage that this really is coming out of is Revelation chapter 20. Uh, at the beginning it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There's the millennium and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I took a class on uh, Revelation in seminary, um, different program than you and I were in, and um, I kept going back and forth between premillennial and amillennial, premillennial and amillennial. Um, my biggest... I. Amillennial to me makes the most sense of the whole book of Revelation because I don't think the whole book of Revelation is meant to be read in a very wooden, literal way. There's so much imagery and apocalyptic language that it feels like it would be forcing a little bit to treat this one section as really literal when the rest of it isn't exactly supposed to be interpreted that way. Um, 
So amillennial made a lot of sense to me of revelation. Premillennial, I, I feel like where amillennial struggles is this part of Satan being bound and not able to deceive the nations. That doesn't feel particularly like that's what's happening right now. So, so I just, I feel problems with it. Where I, it's easier for me to say what I'm not, which is postmillennial and I'm not dispensational premillennial because I think dispensationalism is heresy and um, makes too big of a distinction between Jews and Gentiles, which the whole gospel came to destroy the barrier between Jew and Gentile. So that's a different question you can ask about later. But um, so we'll, yeah. We'll also study Revelation this year, right? We will study Revelation. Yeah. And I think it'll be really helpful for those of you who've never studied this and you don't know what we're talking about right now. You'll actually love the study on Revelation. If you've studied Revelation a lot, you'll hate it. You'll hate our sermon series on that. It's going to be next fall. You're going to come up to us constantly and go, well, have you thought about this? And have you thought about this? And we'll say, yes, we have. Um, and we said what we meant. And, uh, you know, but the, the book is hard to understand and it's hard to, and a lot of it is because it's a letter that's written to people who were supposed to understand it when they wrote it, when they heard it. It's also apocalyptic literature. It's also referring to lots of the Old Testament, which we don't have a lot of familiarity with. So it's going to be a wild ride. So next fall, next fall, we'll do the book of Revelation. I just want to clarify something. You said dispensationalism is heresy. I feel like you'd say that's true about classic dispensationalism, but not all forms of it. Okay. Is that true? If you say so, I, <laughs> I bet you're right. Okay. Just, I was asking you. It's led to a lot of problems. Yeah, I, I think that specifically the teaching about uh, Israel, God having one plan for Israel and God having one plan for the church, I think that's heresy. There are two ways to heaven. Yes. And one of them is not Jesus. That's a problem. That's a problem, right? Everything else that might f fit under a bucket of dispensational, you're right. I should be more specific. So thank you. When you throw out the H word, I just got to clarify. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. No, you're, you, well, well. I stand corrected. Thank you. All right, next question. What defines a healthy church and what is Gateway doing to cultivate and maintain health? Man, what an important question. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Um, I'll start. Great. So I, I think um, I prayed about this. This is a big part of my prayer. So uh, Romans 8 says that we were predestined to be conformed in the image of Christ. And the the church is called the body of Christ. Like Jesus' physical body is not here right now with us on this earth, but we are to be his representatives. Um, and we're actually predestined by God to be his image bearers, his representatives, his renewed, redeemed people. And so a healthy church looks like Jesus. Um, that's, that's what defines a healthy church, I think. And there's a lot of things you can kind of extrapolate from that. So the fruit of the spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, we can go a lot of different ways, but Jesus should be like the first answer to that question. Um, and then what are, what are we doing to cultivate and maintain health? Um, I hope that we're, we're striving to point one another to Jesus. So um, you become like the people you hang out with. Do you, do you ever notice this? When I was a kid, we'd go spend uh, holidays with our, with our family back in Illinois, and they, they speak a little differently in Illinois. You know, they talk about pop instead of soda. <laughs> um, you know, there's a different dialect. There's a different kind of way of doing things. And I would always, always remark when I came back from those trips, I'd, I'd 
I'd be a different person because I had spent time with, huh. with my family in the Midwest. And uh, we become different people when we spend time with Jesus. So our services, our classes, um, our programs, everything's designed to, to help us uh, zero in on proximity to Jesus. And uh, so at least that's the goal. Hmm. Yeah, in, in Titus 2, it talks about teaching what accords with sound doctrine. The word sound could also be translated hygienic or healthy doctrine. And it goes on to give a list of like how people treat people. And so I do think that like there's a doctrine, like a the, the faith once deposited for the saints, like the book of Jude talks about. Uh, then there's like meditating and being with the person of Jesus. And then there's just how we treat each other and how we interact. And do we interact in a way that's congruent? Uh, with the spirit of Christ. And so I think the, the community loving and serving and building each other up in its various pockets and forms, whether it's a class or a group, is a huge part of that. I do think that part of it, people experiencing this as a healthy church will have a lot to do with just the organic conversations that happen in this very room and in that lobby. And so I think uh, it's kind of like if you think about like a cancer cell in the body, like at any point in time, all of us have various cancer cells that are white blood cells are snipping off all the time. Like you all have cancer right now and are, are nervous and our immune systems are fighting it off all the time. And uh, most of the time we talk about getting cancer, I mean, it's cancer that's beaten our immune systems, right? And so it's true, like in every little interaction we have here, like every little interaction can be cancerous or it can be like cells reproducing in life in, in, in goodness of ways. And so um, the individuals, the cells of this body acting as we're called to act is how this body uh, is a healthy body. And so I hope every person in this room feels a degree of responsibility and freedom to contribute to us being a healthy church that you can't have just a healthy couple of people and everybody else cancer and have a healthy body. That's not how it works. Like yeah. we're, it's a, the body's working together as its constituent parts. Yeah. I'll, I'll just add a couple of things on the last part of the question, which is what are we doing? Um, part of what we're trying to do is in lots of different environments, teach the scriptures, teach what is healthy living, healthy doctrine. Um, another thing is trying to get people into community and create pathways where you can develop friendships and relationships. Um, a lot of times we don't grow until kind of need to grow moments. And in those need to grow moments, what you need is God's word and you need a community who are going to help you. Um, so we try to create pathways for you to be known and for you to know others, to be loved and to love others, to use your gifts. Um, a third thing we do is we confront issues that are unhealthy and we try to confront situations where there's ongoing sin that is not being taken seriously or repented of. Um, as that's well a as, huge deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. Um, because if there's, you know, unhealth and it goes unaddressed, um, then leaders, I think, as leaders in the church, we're held accountable for the way that we don't address the problems that are there. Um, and then also really trying to provide as a church uh, care and, uh, and help for people that are in moments of crisis and pain. And then all of that really requires leaders. And so a lot of leadership development that we're doing and investing in people who can lead things like Bible fluency and lead things like the See Jesus School that you mentioned earlier as part of that spiritual formation path. And so um, all of those are ways we're contributing to that health, I hope so. All right, next question. Who could win an arm wrestling match between Luke and Seth? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Matthew, who let's do you think? Go. We could do it. You want to do the let's table? Let's do it. Let's do it. Come on. <laughs> you want to? You'll kill me. Luke played baseball, which is a lot of this. I don't do anything. Are we Come doing on, it? boys? Let's go. Let's, let's have a little fun here. Oh, gosh. All right. 
I've wondered this question for so many years. Is I'm glad someone asked it. Did you text this question? No, I didn't. Remember that time Luke blew out his shoulder at church? <laughs> Are you going to try? <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how hard to try. <laughs> this is it's about to a... become our most watched YouTube oh, stream ever. All right. Let it be known this was a Do you, question. You have to asked. lock hands underneath. There what? you go. Yeah, yeah. And then whoever touches, put your arm down. Whoever touches the other person's forearm first. Or your, their own oh, forearm. Gosh. Ready, set, go. Oh, man. Keep quiet. Oh, that's I want to toss my kids in the air when I'm 89. <laughs> and I need a rotator cuff for that. Uh, I noticed no one asked who would, beat, who would win between me and one of these guys. <laughs> You're all well done, one. buddy. You have to ice my elbow in the back now. Yeah. Hey, this I is why I love this church more. and these guys. They're great guys. <laughs> No more, no more feats of strength. This is, this is not Festivus. All next right. we'll have a... All right, next question. Uh, whew, oh, all right, there we go. We really did it. <laughs> What's the purpose of the prophetic books of the Bible? Mm. Do prophets still exist, or were they only during biblical times? So uh, the prophetic books of the Bible, especially, there's, they're divided into two categories, uh, major prophets and minor prophets. That's not on the basis of importance. It's on the basis of length. So the major prophets would be books like Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Am I missing one? I think I'm missing one. Lamentations, maybe? Anyway, and then there's minor prophets, which are the shorter ones in the crispy part of your Bible. Um, and uh, those are the prophetic books. There were also prophets at different point in history. Then those prophets are talked about, you know, in the historical books as well. So uh, that's the purpose of the prophetic books. Seth, will you take this one? Yeah, the, we misunderstand prophecy all the time. Um, prophets are mostly there to function as covenant litigators is probably a good term. They're, that they're, that they're uh, telling the people of God, you are not being faithful to what God has called you to do. So that's the main function of the prophet is to tell people, you are not holding up your end of the bargain. And they're doing it through poetic imagery and they're doing it in creative cutting ways and they're leading people on and then chopping them off at the knees. But it's basically, most of what the prophets are doing is saying God's people, you are not who you think you are, repent. And so um, there's a small aspect of what they're doing that is they're grounding the people in the hope of the covenant, which is that um, God will redeem his people. And so the, what looks like predictions is mostly the prophets actually promising and re-saying the promises that God has already made. So it's rooted in God's character. They're not predicting the future like hocus pocus. They are reminding the people of the covenant hope they have because God is ruling and running over history. And so quote unquote, modern day prophets who are doing future predictions, I would call false prophets and we should avoid them at all costs. Um, if there are prophets that are calling God's people, hey, you all are not faithful, repent, which is basically what our sermons are every single week. <laughs> like, hey, everybody, be more faithful. In that sense, um, I think it'd be fair to describe our church as prophetic. Uh, we're calling us to be faithful to what God has called us to do and trying to root our hope in the promises of God and in his character as the ruler of history. And so in that sense, all of our sermons are prophetic, um, though they're not like predicting the future. And so in that sense, prophets do still exist. Um, they do cut to the heart. They do uh, remind people of God's promise and call his people to be more faithful. I think it's the main way to understand a biblical prophecy. 
how would you would you do anything with like I know Wayne Grudem talks about there maybe being a distinction between Old Testament prophets and the New Testament gift of prophecy, which is kind of more like encouragement and exhortation. Do you see a distinction there? Would you be comfortable using that kind of like, hey, I, I just have a sense of something that I want to tell you? Like, I do, I do you think the okay spirit can, that I do think the spirit can move us partially through gifting. Like I know some people who like really see people very well and you can see what makes them tick and you can see what they love and what they're afraid of. And you can kind of like see through them into their heart and know them. And, and for purposes of building them up, like I see this in you. I want to see this develop in you. I'm nervous about this for you. Um, I see this coming for you. And that's like rooted in like discernment, like the ability to see people's hearts pretty well. Yeah. I also think the spirit can give people like the gift to really prematurely or like in a really awkwardly fast way, like sense what's going on in someone and see it and acknowledge it and say like, Hey, I see evil in your heart and I'm like brother, brother, you need to repent. Or I see gifting in you and I want to fan it into flame. And so that you could call that prophetic. Um, but I do think that the distinction between new Testament, and old Testament prophecies ends up mostly confusing people. Yeah. Like I'd rather call that as someone with the gift of discernment or someone who's moved by the spirit to like, yeah, no one build each other. Well, the reason I think it matters is because, especially among our more charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters, there would be some people who would say, "I have the gift of prophecy," and they don't mean I'm like an Old Testament prophet declaring new revelation about who God is. They mean I have this ability to see into situations, and God by the Spirit reveals things to me, and I provide encouragement sometimes, and and so I wouldn't want to you know, label those folks as kind of false prophets uh, or, or imagine that we're talking about the exact same thing. Cause I don't think they would define themselves that way. Yeah. Like I, when I was like two years old, a woman at our church said that kid's going to be a preacher one day. And that wasn't her predicting the future. That was her seeing that I was a good talker at two <laughs> and that I was totally comfortable making strangers uncomfortable, you know, so, <laughs> so, so nothing's so, changed. So in That's a great. sense, you, like you call it, was there a prophecy made about me that'd be a preacher? It's like, I mean, you could say that yeah. I'd prefer to say like she saw latent gifting and how it might play out. Like yeah. there's like I more like she was observant than she was like struck by lightning and saw my future. Yeah. Matthew, you keep wanting to jump in. Yeah, I was in, just so. going to say, some Old Testament prophets' words were recorded in what we now consider the Holy Scriptures. We don't believe that <clears throat> there's new prophecy that are becoming, yeah. thus saith the Lord. Um, we, we also believe that um, prophets today, like prophets of old, they, they, their words still need to be discerned in a community of faith filled with the Spirit against yeah. the Scriptures, yeah. right? So that's still really important. All right, we've got time for a few more. Let's uh, go to the next one. If communion is a remembrance of what Christ has done, why do we warn non-believers not to participate? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, the first thing I'd say is it's at, it's at least a remembrance of what Christ has done, but it's not only that. And actually last year uh, for our Advent series, we did a series called Truth, Truth We Can Touch. We encourage you to go back and look at that because we look at baptism and communion and what they are. Um, and what we taught in that, in that series was that communion is a remembrance of Christ. It's also an experience of the presence of Christ with us by the Spirit. Um, and so um, we don't hold to the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and the cup become the body and blood of Jesus. 
but we do believe that Jesus is so close to us by the Spirit when we celebrate communion as a church um, that the real miracle of communion is that the bread and the cup stay the bread and the cup. That's how close Jesus is to us in the process. And so um, that's just one thing. That, that's what communion is. Um, the reason we warn non-believers not to participate um, is in, I think, 1 Corinthians. Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. In chapter 11, the Apostle Paul's talking about communion and all these different you know, problems that are happening in the church in Corinth related to the Lord's Supper. And it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why so many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's pretty serious. Yeah, which we haven't ever said, hey, if you're not a Christian or if you're a Christian in unrepentant sin, don't take communion or you might die. We probably should start adding that to the, to the rhythm. <laughs> you could say that. Um, but that really is why we give that warning is uh, th that idea of examining yourself, not eating the bread or drinking the cup in an unworthy manner. Now, here's, here's the thing we want to clarify. Uh, unworthy manner doesn't mean that you have your life together and therefore you're qualified to eat communion. That's not what it means. The, the idea of an unworthy manner is that you're not in Christ, so this is not something that is, Christ isn't with you in a particular way through communion because you're not in Christ. That would be one kind of unworthy manner. The other would be that you have this ongoing, unrepentant, I'm not willing to deal with this, I know this is wrong, but hey, it's just the way I am, kind of sin going on in your life that you're not taking seriously, and therefore eating and drinking and enjoying the presence of the Lord is really just a charade that would be taking it in an unworthy manner. So really all of us should be doing that kind of examination as we celebrate the Lord's Supper week in and week out. Um, but that's particularly why we often warn non-believers not to participate. This, this comes back to what you read at the beginning, that the, the gospel is what's of first importance yeah. and communion pictures the gospel. It is a physical recitation of the gospel. Yes. And if we're not believing the gospel, but saying to the people around us, we believe the gospel, that would be an unworthy yeah. Thing. And I want to just invite you to start experiencing communion, not just as a remembrance, but that when you pick up those elements under your chair, imagine that the Lord himself is handing you these and saying, this is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. Like this is Jesus is with us by the spirit. He's here and he's among us. And I think to experience communion that way is far richer than just to think of the, the memory of it. There's I mean, he, we didn't need the physical symbols to just remember him. We could have just used our brains, but he gave us the physical symbols also. I also really like just the, the teaching that it creates, that grace is offered to you and you won't receive it. And in the communion moment, like the elements are right there and you won't receive them for what they are. And so I, I do like the, the kind of the confrontation of if you won't repent and believe in the gospel, um, it's right here. You can, whenever you're ready to repent and believe, you can repent and believe. Uh, just like the elements are under your seat, whenever you want them, they're there. Uh, and when you're ready to receive them as they are, then yeah. receive them. So I, I like the, the bit of the crisis moment that it creates. And hey, if you don't trust in this, then acknowledge that you're choosing not to trust in this. Yeah. So there's an evangelistic yeah. purpose too. Good. All right, let's do two more. Uh, next one. Oh, baby. 
AZ has, Arizona has become a nexus of challenging and intricate issues, human trafficking, mass migration and immigration, institutional distrust, environmental stewardship, et cetera. How do, I assume there's probably supposed to be a you there, how do you view redemption's role in meeting needs in these areas while pointing our community to Jesus in 2023? Yeah. Here's a phrase I've been saying to people a lot lately is that winners have to be quitters. And what I mean by that is you can only effectively do so many things. You and say you, winners have to be quitters? Yeah. It's kind so of, I won the arm wrestling. You, yeah, you won, yeah. There you go. Yeah. You have to pick what you want to win and choose to not try to win at everything. Yeah. And, and there's this reality that if Redemption Gateway tried to solve all the issues, we would do absolutely nothing. And so there, there is a pragmatic recognition that we have to decide what we're going to focus on. Yeah. And deciding what we're going to focus on is painful because it means you're going to not focus on other things that really matter. Yeah. And that's true on an individual basis, on a household basis, on a church family basis. Uh, and so I'd say like, there's all these issues, and I think that's one of the difficulties with the kind of um, news as entertainment is you're tempted to like want to care to the point of action about thousands of things. And the reality is that we can only do a handful of things. And so like we have emphases on our local partnerships that really focus on um, vulnerable women and children, which decidedly means that we're choosing to emphasize that we are choosing to spend less time on all the other things. And that's not to say other things aren't important. That's one of the benefits of being in like a multi-congregational thing, that other congregations get to focus on other things. Uh, but even just being able to communicate and mobilize people towards some things is difficult, much less mobilizing people towards all the things. And so our, our primary partners are really focusing on vulnerable women and children. And we've kind of decided to make that a priority and say, we're going to try to do make a dent somewhere rather than make, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, when it sprinkles and you get a little bit of water and everything and nothing grows versus like irrigating on one thing, something can grow. We're kind of trying to do that on issues. And so some of that means is that issues that maybe individuals in our congregation really care about won't get any attention or energy from the church. And that's disappointing and that's frustrating. Um, but it has to be that way if we're going to do anything about anything. So yeah. that's that's my pre preemptive disappointment. Yeah, disappointment. the other thing we're trying to do is to equip you to live out your calling. And we have different callings. And some of you have particular callings and opportunities in a number of these areas. When there's opportunities that we know about, we can help inform you and equip you. So that's part of it as well. All right, one last question. Who are our church's elders and how can we connect with them? Yeah, good question. So we have, as I mentioned, nine elders. Uh, the three of us are elders. John Cronwald is also an elder. He's on staff. Uh, oh. John's right there. There we go. Oh, wow. There's our elders. There they are. And they pulled that off of the uh, website, it looks like. So if you go to our website, um, redemp gateway.redemptionaz.com, uh, you can find uh, these guys there. I, I think there's a way from the website to email each of them. I'm not sure. Um, I, I could be wrong on that, um, but uh, yeah. I'd I think there is. If there isn't, you can email us and we can give you their contact info. Yeah, these guys are they are very accessible. They do a lot of the membership interviews. They're around a bunch. Uh, I know that Jeffrey, Jeffrey is, I saw him in the back. Jeffrey's in the Jeffrey's back. Jeffrey's right there. John's um, right there. 
I don't know. Are they the elders yeah. in the room? Any other guys here, elders? Anyway. Coming to the next service? So, yeah, they're around. Uh, and they love to hear from you and love you. So. All right. Well, uh, guys, thank you for your questions. Thanks for uh, your participation in this. Uh, thanks for your grace. And, um, yeah, let me close that. Well, I'll, let, me, let, me, uh, let me pray. And then we'll do a benediction, all right? Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've revealed yourself, how you've revealed your heart, and how uh, who you are shapes who we are. And God, we want to be that healthy church this year. We want to be a church that is defined and described by love and by good relationships and by repentance of sin and um, by uh, praising you and enjoying time with you and um, eating your word until we're full and expecting your return and doing good in the various ways that you've called us and invited us to. Um, God, having fun together as a church family. God, all the things that I think have even happened in this time here together, we pray just for more of that. We pray that we could honor you and enjoy you and delight in you. And we pray that you would be made much of this year uh, and always in Jesus' name, amen. Dinosaurs. That doesn't sound like a question. Here's a question. Where do dinosaurs fit in the biblical timeline of creation? That is a great question. We get a question about dinosaurs every time we do this, which is interesting. So I don't know if this can be our official last time we answer the question or not. But um, Seth, will you answer that? Yeah, so scripture is comprehensive for the purposes of salvation, but it's not exhaustive. So it gives us the the full story of salvation history, but doesn't give us uh, every detail of world history. And so it's important to understand that uh, the book of Genesis is a selective telling of world history. And it's telling you the story of God's people. It's not telling you um, about all the earthquakes and all the all the all everything that ever happened. And so it's not encyclopedic, but it is comprehensive. Um, the, the whole issue of dinosaurs uh, mostly depends on if you have like a a young earth view of the Bible, which uh, would say that there's like six literal days of creation. Um, and then there's other like folks like Ken Ham and whatnot who um, try to help people who are committed to that interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11, see how dinosaurs fit in. So if, if that's you, you can check that out. Um, I don't hold that position. I'd hold to a view that more that Genesis 1 is telling you the true story of a creation, but it's not telling it to you in a purely prosaic historical perspective. And so um, God creates the world in six iterations, and he's mostly telling that story through Moses as a way of challenging the Babylonian idolatry. And it's um, pushing back on the false gods of Babylon and Egypt in these various ways of telling that story. And so I'd probably hold that the earth is uh, substantially older than those who'd say it's like six or 8,000 years old, and that the Bible's telling you a selective account. And so even in Genesis like three and four, uh, like when God sends Cain out of the garden, he gives him a mark so that he wouldn't be killed by the other people. Well, where are the other people? Where do they come from? Uh, that's a whole question because so far all we know about is Adam's family. And so my kind of perspective on that is that God's telling you the story of Adam's family because he's the, the federal head of the human race who would eventually be replaced as the true human, Jesus Christ. And so I think there are stories uh, the dinosaurs are probably in there. Some people think that in the book of Job talks about dinosaurs, like there's a Leviathan in the behemoth, uh, which is kind of, uh, the King James translates behemoth as unicorn because it was like a big rhino with a big thing. So it's not unicorn like in like the My Little Pony sense, but unicorn in like the rhino with one horn sense. Um, but ESV translates it behemoth. Uh, and so there's these big animals. Are they dinosaurs or not? Did humans walk with them or not? Um, it's uh, not 
totally clear. So at least from my perspective, dinosaurs are kind of a non-problem. But they're not in there, so don't look for dinosaurs in the Bible because you won't find them. There you go. All right, next question. What book or books of the Bible should I encourage my friend to read as they've just begun attending church? Um, yeah, I would say uh, the Gospel of Mark is a really great place to start because um, it's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's the most kind of action-packed, which for us Western Americans uh, gets us, you know, it's moving. The, the, the key word that appears over and over is immediately, immediately, immediately. So Jesus is doing a lot of stuff. And I think it's a great place to get to know Jesus and what he did and what he's about. Um, John is another great place because Jesus talks so much about the heart of who he is and what he came to do, um, though the first, you know, 14 or so verses are a little cryptic for someone that's just totally brand new to it. But I would say the book of uh, the book of Mark is a good one. I also think Genesis is a good one. You get this early story of how God created the world, what's really wrong with the world, and how God begins to redeem it with Abraham and his family. And so I think those are two pretty good places. Would you guys say anything different? Okay. All right, next question. If election and limited atonement are true, why does it feel like a behind-the-scenes theology? How do we evangelize knowing this is true? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll jump in. You, you okay. guys have been doing a series on this, on King and Culture, uh, the King and Culture podcast. So Yeah, if you don't know, Seth and I have a podcast we do called King and Culture. You can find it on Spotify or iTunes or wherever. And yeah, we are right in the middle. I think our last two episodes actually are about atonement and election. So uh, we can say hours worth of things on there that we can say minutes worth of things here. But yeah, yeah. So I think there are a lot of helpful truths that we that come out of the doctrine of election and uh, limited atonement. Um, but but one of the not helpful things would be to try to figure out who's elect and only evangelize to those people. The scriptures never ask us to do that. Hmm. Never tell us to do that. We we proclaim the gospel just like Jesus did to everyone, and those who come come by God's grace so that he gets all the glory and gets all the credit. And so I would say um, the, the doctrine of election and limited atonement shouldn't in any way hinder your, your evangelism. It should only uh, fuel it because good news, there are people out there that God has chosen and he's going to open their eyes mm. and it's not dependent on you, but you get to be part of the witness and the mouthpiece that God uses, which is really awesome. So if anything, it should move us toward others um, in sharing the good news, it shouldn't in any way uh, slow us down. Yeah. There's also a misunderstanding that what, how, what evangelism is. Evangelism is telling good news. And so I'm like, In-N-Out Burger does not need any of your business, but I'm going to tell you all you should go to In-N-Out Burger. Why? Because I love it and I think it's awesome and you'd be better if you went to it. And so uh, it's not like, does In-N-Out need me to do it? It's like, hey, I, I'm, I'm evangelizing. Here's good news. In-N-Out Burger is this, you know? And, and so we, we evangelize what we love and what we find and experience is personally good. And so it's not like we just evangelize so that we can have some outcome. We evangelize because we love something we want to tell people about it. And, and it's, a, it's an overflow of the heart. It's a, it's a move of the spirit that's helping us see and go like, I love this. You would love it too. And I love him and you love him too. That's evangelism. It's not just trying to control for outcomes. Yeah. God is not a pragmatist, which like shocks us because so much of our society is practical, pragmatic. What's the point? God forms things like, like galaxies that we've never even seen before just for his own good pleasure. Uh, he, he speaks to us not only through truth, but also through goodness and beauty. 
And so when we, when we ask these kind of what's the point practical questions, we need to understand that God operates outside of those parameters. Those are, those are fine questions, but there's a lot more that he's doing outside of those parameters that's important for us to understand. Great. All right, next question. How do I wrestle with difficult or seemingly contradictory passages of Scripture? Sometimes it's hard to believe the Bible is 100% true when I read something like Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. I'll uh, see who can get there faster, the paper guy or the... Oh, I got it. All right, Exodus 21, verses 20 uh, and 21 uh, says, When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So this is in a section, a long section, dealing with lots of different laws for the nation of Israel after they've come out of Egypt, and they're going to go into a promised land. And yeah, I can see why that would be a really... Like, what in the world? Like, okay, first of all, there's slavery. Second of all, there's abusing slave, sl slaves. Third, it's just describing slaves as money. I guess it depends how long he lives. If I beat the poor slave and he, right? Like, so, yeah, that, that'd be a lot of problems. So we encounter problems like that. Or you could talk about lots of other things. Um, you could talk about questions of sexuality being next to issues in Leviticus related to what, kind of fabric are in your clothes, or can you eat shellfish, or there's lots of things that make the Bible hard to believe. So how, do you, how would you encourage someone to, who's wrestling with these difficult passages of Scripture? Can we believe the Bible when there's stuff like this in it? It's important to understand that we're always reading the Bible with Western modern eyes, and we are presuming ourselves to be right, and then we are reading the Scriptures. So a lot of times we think about how I'm interpreting the Bible rather than seeing the Bible as interpreting me, which is how it should be happening. And so I, I would say there are a lot of difficult passages that seem to contradict each other. They do not. I don't think the Bible contradicts each other. It contradicts itself. It's God's word. God doesn't contradict himself. They do exist in tension, or they create difficulties in working through those is is a real part of um, wrestling, and I and I would say it's also not a new problem. It's not like oh, in the last hundred years we've wrestled with different difficult passages. That's what something the church has been doing, or God's people have been doing for three thousand years, especially back to uh, the early church. They wrestled with these things, um, like for that that passage in particular on slavery. Uh, it's important to understand that what God is doing is He's speaking into a cultural moment correcting something that's happening in that cultural moment, right? You have this doctrine moving in to the ancient Near East that every person, male, female, slave, non-slave, uh, rich, poor, um, is made in God's image and full of dignity and value. And the ancient Near East had no, no context for that, that you had landowners and non-persons, and you had the wealthy and you had the property, there's this gigantic gap. And so this idea, like the ancient or Eastern person would read this text and hear about if a man strikes a slave and the slave dies, he needs to be avenged. And, and their reaction would be, are you kidding me? A slave having rights? That this idea of life for life applying to a slave is crazy. And so... You, the, so they would disbelieve the Bible for totally different reasons. They would disbelieve the Bible for other reasons. They would say, like, you mean expect... It'd be like if you read the Bible and it said, if you step on an ant, then you're guilty of murder. And everyone in this room would be like, yeah, 
right. Have you, like, ants have, how could an ant have right to life or anything like that? And so the ancient Greeks would think the same thing about slaves. They would think of these kind of purely economic cogs in a machine serving something. And they'd be tempted to disbelieve the Bible because, like, what kind of sane person would say that a non-king or queen has rights and that if a king or queen beats their slave, they don't do it? And so we got to understand that we're always coming to the Bible being confronted or corrected um, in these um, various things. And even this idea that there would be a just way to treat a slave would be um, radically difficult. Now, I don't pretend to understand the details of every single one of the laws in the Old Testament and how they apply and what they mean for us today. Um, when we taught through this text, and a couple of months ago I taught on slavery in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I forget what sermon series we're in. Was it in First Samuel or was it before that? I don't remember. I remember. It's very memorable, but the, uh, but just <laughs> it like, changed my life, but I don't remember what it, which, yeah. which one it was. Luke hasn't owned a slave ever since I taught that passage. <laughs> so, nor has he beat a slave. So there, so the, the, but so I think just acknowledging the fact that like, yeah, this idea of like, well, if you, if you discipline an employee and they recover from it, um, you're not guilty of murder. Like that looks like from modernized certain mistreatment. And I want to read that text and go like, it seems like mistreatment, but also I don't fully understand the context of the, of that time period. I don't know what other existing laws existed that that laws may be improving on or correcting. A guy named William Webb talked about trajectory hermeneutics, how God is correcting the, uh, the fallenness of society one degree at a time through his law. He's not kind of making huge jumps, but he's making um, progressive jumps as, as he's changing the trajectory of the way humans are treating each other. Um, if you think of like the orcs in Lord of the Rings, he's giving orcs rules to how to govern themselves and they can only assimilate so much at one time. Maybe that's part of the process. Um, so I, I do think that these difficult passages that seem in tension with other passages or even like what we believe to be like baseline human rights, the more we immerse ourselves in the ancient Near East and the more we see what God is doing and correcting, we'll see wisdom in the way that God is doing it. That does take a lot of work and it takes time. Well, and you just said something there like, no, you wouldn't have a problem with that verse if not for the Bible, is what you're saying. Yeah. The, right? Like, like, it was only because of the biblical vision of human dignity and rights and being made in the image of God that you could read a verse like that and have a problem with it. Yeah, from a purely secular Darwinistic perspective, what is wrong with the rich harming the poor or the strong oppressing the weak. There's yeah. nothing wrong. Until you have a baseline conviction in the image of God. Survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest is right. That might makes right. That's Darwinism. And so trying to recognize that even my instinct to not like that is because of my biblical shaping. And the entire Western culture has been shaped with this view of human rights and human dignity that has basically stolen the biblical vision of the image of God. And so that's actually not a reason to disbelieve the Bible, but it's more reason to believe the Bible, that the way that we go about treating people and understanding the value of each person is because of the thrust of what the scriptures have taught us. Yeah. Can I add one more point? Sure. I know we're taking a long time. Um, this is important. Yeah, this is super important. I'd say, how do I wrestle with difficult passages? One, we need to wrestle humbly, understanding that it's the scriptures that read us, not we who read the scriptures. So, um, and then the second thing I'd, I'd add is from Hebrews 1, talking about the supremacy of Christ. Hmm. Um, like Jesus is our hermeneutic. He's the lens that we look at all of scripture through. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom, whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then it goes on and talks about the gospel, which is the thing of first importance. So yeah. Jesus and his gospel, his character, his person reveals, he illuminates the scriptures to us. The Old Testament uh, Israelites had the scriptures and they missed Jesus. Mm. They didn't have the key. We have the key. So that, that's what we look through to make sense of, of the rest of the biblical story. Well, and part of the, the reason I would say I believe the scriptures is because Jesus did. Uh, he says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, to, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And so Jesus upheld the scripture and Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off. And so if you can predict your own death and resurrection and then do it, I just believe what you say. And Jesus believed in the scriptures. But, but that's not to minimize that there is some wrestling to do and some real work. So. Yeah, there, there's certainly a handful of texts that despite studying them, I still come to a place where I'm like, I'm not super content with my ability to comprehend and wrap my mind around it. And that's kind of the part, point at which I stop and I go, God is smarter than me. Maybe I'm just not able to grasp what he's doing here or the wisdom of what he's trying to do here. Or, or, and I just kind of need to like, well, maybe I'll pick it up in a couple of years and see if I have the horsepower then to deal with what's going on here. And trying to allow space hmm. for that might just happen. Yeah, great. All right, next question. How can I trust in the influence of prayer when terrible losses happen, no matter how hard I plead with God? Hmm. Man, there's a lot of pain in that question. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think we've got to remember what it is that God is up to in, at this moment in history, in this time in the story. Um, he's not removing all the pain yet. Like That is a glorious hope that we have, that I cling to. Um, but that's not what he's up to primarily right now. He's up to calling out a people um, and forming them in his image so that we can be salt and light in, in his stead. So, uh, and he uses suffering and pain to do all kinds of things that could, we believe, by faith, otherwise not be done. And so um, I think we, we pray for what we long to see God do, but we always pray with faith trusting that he knows best. And um, sometimes that means he doesn't answer the prayers we would, the way we would hope he would. Yeah, I think seeing Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, please take this cup from me, and the Father saying no, and then Christ being crucified, that that is the worst thing to happen in all time, that the innocent person would be crucified for sin he didn't commit, um, torturously murdered over time, and that, that God used the worst thing ever to happen to be leveraged as the best thing that ever happened is I think what emotionally at least helps me in the gap of my understanding uh, sit in those spaces going that the worst thing ever was used by God to become and on purpose designed to be the best thing ever mm -hmm. and that began with God saying no to Jesus' prayer of please take this cup from me and so there's something in Christ's ability to receive the Father's no that I think is we, I need to sit with and we need to sit with. And it's not totally unlike in parenting my child who is like, can I have something? And I say no, and it's tantrum. And it's like, well, we're trying to teach him to receive the no. And I think sometimes the father's teaching us to receive the no. And I know that's a trivial example when it comes to substantive 
um, pain and suffering. But I think looking at Christ receive the no and then that becoming the best thing ever mm. um, in the spaces where we don't see what God is doing, looking to the cross and seeing, I won't understand every single instance, but I can see the most significant one, the greatest revelation of God, which is him crucified. And to some degree be comforted that God is up to something beyond me. And I don't know how long it'll take for me to see it. I might not even be until the new creation that I see it. And, uh, but God is weaving and telling a story beyond me is I think part of what's comforting me in those moments. I want to add just one thing is um, uh, not to pick the question apart, um, but to actually point something out to whoever asked this is um, what you're really asking is not how can you trust in the influence of prayer, but you're asking how can I trust the Lord? Right? Because there's not some influence of prayer out there. There's God who answers prayer. What you're saying is, God, who I'm pleading with, is letting these things happen that are terrible. And how do I trust him? And um, I think the first thing would be to realize that's what you're actually dealing with. And so you name that as like, that's my issue, is I'm, I'm struggling to trust God when he lets these things happen to me. Um, and then I think in addition to looking at Jesus and these things these guys have said is, is give yourself permission to be as honest with God as the scriptures are honest with God. The Bible's filled in the Psalms. Jesus in the garden's another example. Uh, Paul pleading in 2 Corinthians to take this thorn in the flesh away from me. The Bible's filled with people being honest with God about their disappointments with God. And God is big enough to handle that kind of lament and that kind of disappointment. And so I just want to invite you to do that and to lean into that. Um, because really, it's not, our relationship with God's not about getting what we want. Our relationship with God is about being close to God. And if the pain is making you feel like you can't be close to God, then I, I hope you can be honest enough with the Lord and lean in enough to him so that ultimately, whether you get what you want or not, you get him. Pra practically the thing I would just encourage you to do is I'm sure that probably half the people in this room, if you took 10 seconds, could think about things going on right now in your life that you identify with this question. Like I've been praying and yet nothing, or this is and, and just the weight of that. And the temptation when you're in this position is to feel lonely mm. and to then act in that loneliness and like a nobody but me. Like I think about the picture of Eeyore with like the one cloud over him, like nobody else is in the cloud but me. And, and that the praying people, God's community, the praying community has been dealing with God disappointing them for thousands of years. And so... Uh, finding people to go, God is disappointing me. How is he disappointing you? And let's pray about it together. And let's, to bear one of those burdens is, is part of the way that we functionally walk through that is like rejecting the lie that I'm by myself in this type of thing. I might be by myself in this thing, but I'm not by myself in this type of thing. And there's other people around me who are also dealing with the pain of unanswered prayer or prayer answered in a way you don't like. Uh, and you're not alone in that. All right, next question. Are Catholics and LDS also Christians? How should I talk about my faith with them? So here's, here's the first thing I'd say is uh, a Christian is someone who believes that there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that the Son took on flesh to save his people from their sin, and he was buried 
he's died, he's died, then he's buried. He's died, then he's buried. He's resurrected, and he's coming back again to reign, the earth, reign over the earth. That's what the teaching of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And so that's a Christian, someone who believes that and walks in it. Um, there are probably are many people who go to Roman Catholic churches who think that. There are probably many people who go to Roman Catholic churches who don't think that, just like there are many people who show up to here on a Sunday who think that, and many people who maybe show up to here on a Sunday who don't think that, who may be doing what they're doing for sociological reasons, et cetera, et cetera. I say, you said think that, but you mean believe that, yeah, like believe trust that. it. Yeah, believe it, trust it, walk in it. And so where someone puts their feet on a Sunday morning does not make someone a Christian or not. What someone believes and walks in with from their heart is what makes someone Christian, someone has a relationship with God Most High who took on flesh to welcome us. I would say, formally speaking, the Latter-day Saint doctrine that Jesus Christ was created is a non-Christian doctrine. It is sub-Christian. Um, that Jesus is not eternal with the Father. That he was a sub-creation. That's a heresy that um, was taught by Arius in the, in the third century and was um, stamped out by the church's heresy, teaching that Jesus Christ was created by the Father. That is a non-Christian, non-biblical teaching. Um, and so, again, whether someone puts their feet somewhere is a different question. So I do think that for Latter-day Saints in particular, trying to help people see Jesus Christ, the uncreated one, the one by whom and through whom all things were made, co-equal with the Father, that God took on flesh, not a demigod or a sub-god, or some other, like, took on flesh. That the maker became made is, is the story. And so from the, the LDS perspective, I think there's a more clear and obvious gap there. I think we have a ton of disagreements with Roman Catholics about a variety of very important things. Um, but I wouldn't put Roman Catholics and Latter-day Saints in the same category because Roman Catholics don't at least teach, like, grade A tier one heresy like the, that the LDS church does. Yeah, how should you talk about your faith with them? I think, uh, I mean, one thing that, you, Matthew, you worked at a bank. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> I did. Yeah. How did they teach you to identify counterfeits at the bank? Yeah. Um, so we would handle cash as a teller, uh, and they taught us to identify counterfeits by spending a lot of time just handling the, the true and real thing. So they didn't give us a list of all the different ways bills are counterfeited, but, but we had such experience handling the, the true thing that I, I could go through a stack of bills and immediately feel, see, smell the, the fake ones. Um, and I do, I do think that that's a big deal. Like, uh, it, it's interesting, we, we had the opportunity, it was actually a great opportunity to welcome in some uh, Mormon missionaries years ago into our home and um, have a kind of a weekly Bible study with them where we kind of were up front with them and said, hey, we, we don't think we believe the same thing, but we'd love to hear from you what you believe and we'd love to share what we believe. And we sat down every week and we had this exchange. Um, and part of that process was me getting uh, some time to really read the Book of Mormon. And it just didn't feel like the real thing, guys. Like, I'm, I, like I, I hate to be so subjective. There's all kinds of other ways you could discern this, but... Um, it's just, when you read well, the scriptures... He, you hear his, his sheep hear his voice. Yeah, when you read the scriptures and, you and then you voice. read the... It just isn't. It, yeah. There's no... It's not... There's no life. Yeah. There's no power in it. Yeah, so I'd encourage you to get to know the real thing. Talk about what the Lord's doing in your life. And just realize there's going to be lots of times where you're using the same words and have a totally different dictionary and you're going to have to stumble your way through all that. So, but, but don't give up. Don't give up talking about your faith with everybody. All right, next question. Yeah. 
When it comes to doctrine, where is the line between heresy and conviction? It seems like there are way too many people within the church fighting over things that may be important, but not salvific. Amen. Um, yeah, that's a really important question. So where's the line between heresy and conviction? Uh, I, I want to draw a distinction. I don't think something has to be salvific to be heretical. That was sort of a statement, but with like a Seth, could you tell me if I'm right <laughs> about that? Um, my point is like not everything's a salvation issue, like, uh, but it could be a heresy. So maybe talk about what is a heresy, Seth. We've talked about this some on our podcast. So heresy comes from the word that means to choose your own way. So heresy most basically means going on on your own, uh, out of the bounds of like the the faith once for all deposited to the saints, like the book of Jude talks about, when you're going, I know the faith once deposited the saints, I'm going to go this way. That's called heresy. And so uh, historically, the church understood heresy to be something that violated the creeds, uh, or especially like the, the early church creeds, like Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed. And so the, a heresy would be something that violates those things. I do think, I agree with this question, that um, people are um, blowing stuff up and fighting big time over stuff that are non-heresy things. Um, since like the, the Protestant Reformation in like the 1500s, 1600s, the church is divided most often over issues related to the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's not the cool way to divide anymore. There's cooler things to divide over now. But like you just think like who, like churches are now aren't like splitting over like, well, they think the Lord's Supper is this. They, like that, that was 500 years ago. So the church is always coming up with things to divide and fight over that in hindsight, I think will seem semi-trivial. Like there's a lot of people who play nice together different views of baptism and Lord's Supper that hate each other about other stuff within the church. So it's basically a huge, so, sad thing. So let me ask this question. So is everyone, is everyone or every belief that's wrong heresy? What's the difference between a wrong belief and a heretical belief? I think a heresy would be what I call a, like a tier one violation of the creeds. Like Jesus is created. Uh, there are three gods. These would be heresies. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, Matthew knows. See, yeah. he sniffed it out quick, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jesus created. There are three gods. Jesus is not born of a virgin. Jesus did not rise from the dead. Jesus did not die for your sins. Um, the Father you, you not, can work your way to you heaven. You can work your way to you heaven. You can work your way to heaven. Yeah, like all these, like, um, I would classify those heresy. A lot of other things that I care about. Um, that are maybe like more like heterodox, like a less, like I think are substantially wrong, but they're not grade A tier one heresy. And there's other things that I like would argue till I'm blue in the face about that I'm not willing to divide over that I think people within this room, even people within on the stage can disagree about and it's not a, a huge problem. And obviously like one of us is going to be wrong. Like uh -huh. in the last service or we talked about yeah. Revelation 20 on the millennium. Right. Like someone is right and someone is wrong. Yeah, nobody's a heretic. Would be or my, we could all be wrong. Well, and, and or we, we could should, all be wrong. Yeah. And, and part of what I, even in the last service, so sorry you all weren't here, I'll revisit some of it, is I used the word heresy a little too loosely. And you helpfully said, hey, time out. We probably don't want to use it like that, right? Like I, I described dispensationalism as heretical. What I meant was I think the particular teaching of classic dispensationalism that would say that there's one way that Israel gets saved and another way the church gets saved, I think that's heresy. But to say that all of dispensationalism is heresy, you said, hey, hey let's, not, let's not say that. Because heresy really, part of what we're trying to say is like, heresy is a big deal word. 
You don't just throw it around. You don't be sloppy with it. I was sloppy with it. You helpfully corrected me. And so I, I think that's even some of what I really appreciate about this question is to go, okay, how do I determine like, okay, I think they're wrong about that, but it's not that big of a deal, or I just disagree, or no, this is actually like a huge deal worth dividing over. Because um, I would agree with the, the sentiment that lots of people are fighting over everything, right? We have cupcake wars. <laughs> like, we're fighting over everything. So anyway, any, any other thoughts you guys would have on this? I, I just think um, it, part of this, like, it's a good question, but the question you should be asking about like what leaders you want to follow or what books you want to read or what church you want to be part of probably isn't this question. It's probably like, it isn't, are they teaching heresy or not? It should be more like, are they people I want to become like? Like I want to be, who do I want to be formed into? Now that, that bears into it. I mean, sure. for sure. Um, but, it, but it does kind of seem like in certain corners of Christianity, you can be a total jerk and not display the fruits of the spirit. But as long as your doctrine's right, we'll follow you. And I just feel like that's not what, geez, that's not what the world needs. That's not what we need. Yeah. Yeah, I'm friends with a lot of pastors throughout the valley that I think are wrong about a lot of stuff. And I think they're right on Jesus. And they and, think you're wrong about it. And they that. think I'm wrong about a bunch of stuff, right? And they're yeah. wrong, but they think I'm wrong about it. <laughs> uh, everyone's free to have their convictions, but nobody's calling each other heretics, right? And I think that's like we're, we're acknowledging that. And I think that the more we can lean into that, that's a healthier deal. Yeah. Okay, good question. All right, next. How can I encourage friends or family who don't regularly attend church due to past hurt? Are they forsaking the assembly? Uh, you could try passive aggression. You've probably Watch already... Watch this question from the Ask Anything. No reason. Yeah. You've already probably tried that, and it's not working. So let's think of some other strategies. What would be some other uh, strategies here? I, I think we've got to define uh, church hurt. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And um, here's the reality. Like, any time you're part of any community for a long period of time, you will be hurt by people because mm. we're all broken people trying to figure out how to live together. Um, I think there are certain types of hurt that are more uh, difficult to heal from and maybe even to use a, a buzzword traumatic than others. And I think there's a process to deal with that. But uh, to reject all form of community because you were hurt once in community, I think is a pretty short-sighted or narrow understanding of how we're, we're formed as people. We, we need community. Like if you just hang out on your own, you are not going to be a better version of yourself in 10 years. Yeah. You, you need the, 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 right. you so, need the sharpening. So the person asking the question, though, they're like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking this question. Oh, yeah. But how, do I, but how do I help this person who they feel hurt? And whether I think their hurt's legit enough or not doesn't really matter because the person I care about feels hurt by church. They yeah. don't trust the church. This is especially, I think, the, the more in leadership you are and you experience church hurt, the longer it takes to recover from this. Right? So how would I actually help them? Because uh, I know all the reasons why they should come to church, and I know you're going to get hurt in church, and they probably know that too. But existentially, it's like, yeah, but I don't know if I can do that again. How do I, how do I help them move on? The thing I would encourage you to do is... Uh, is as much as possible enter into their pain and feel along with them and get to the point where you feel affected similarly to the way that they are. Because uh, what they need is 
someone who's like seeing them, believing them, empathizing with them, walking with them, connected to them, and is a very strong chance that you are the physician God has sent to help them be healed by, by empathizing, connecting, walking through that. And besides your presence being part of what's going to heal them, I would really encourage them to just like keep pursuing healing. Uh, rather than being fixated on, is this Sunday the Sunday? Is this Sunday the Sunday? Is this Sunday the Sunday? Like, trying to keep encouraging them, like, hey, keep working through that. I know it's painful. Keep working through that. Like I, like I think about when my dad got his knee replaced. He really wanted to get back to the gym. Um, going to physical therapy is not fun. Going to the gym is fun. And it's like, well, I guess I'll just, and you got like, keep going to physical therapy. Keep going to physical therapy. Like nobody's having a good time at physical therapy, but everyone is there to try to get to the point where they can go to do the thing. And so sometimes people need to go to whatever emotional, spiritual version of physical therapy is before they can, uh, their nervous system can handle showing back up at a place like this. And so rather than calling them to repent of forsaking the assembly, I would encourage them to stay on the path towards healing, keep going to physical therapy, keep trying to work through it, keep dealing with that stuff. Uh, and even just being able to identify with, yeah, sometimes I don't want to show up to church because that person's going to be there and it's going to be weird when we make eye contact and it's like, yeah, you said that thing to me last Christmas Eve and we haven't looked at each other since. You know, and like there's, there's, there's internal turmoil and tension and not to equivocate all forms of those things, but I think mostly encouraging people to pursue healing and working through it rather than like preaching at them um, or calling them repent of um, being hurt would be a more strategic and also more Christ-like path. I think when Christ comes to people, in the Gospels, uh, the hardline religious people are the ones that he was rough on. The other people he more engaged in this process that that kind of inspired them into faithfulness rather than just demanding it. And so I would uh, do the incarnation work before you do the preaching work. Yeah, and I'd say lean on us. Like we and a lot of the other pastors and staff and leaders here, I know dozens of people who have healed through this kind of stuff who we could go, hey, here's someone maybe who's walked a similar path, if they'd be open to connect. I mean, th there's, there's a lot of resources for that besides permanent uh, disengagement. So we've got time for a few more. Let's, uh, let's see if we can do these. What does the Bible say about suicide and entering into heaven? Hmm. What does the Bible there's, say about suicide and entering into heaven? I mean, broadly speaking, there's, there's one way you get into heaven, and that's by trusting in what Jesus has done to make you clean before the Father. Suicide doesn't negate that. Um, I don't know that it speaks directly to this topic, like specifically. If this, then that. Yeah. No. Yeah. But I would just say there's one way to get to heaven. Yeah. The, I mean, whoever's asking this question is probably doing it for one of two reasons. Either you love someone who has committed suicide or you're contemplating suicide yourself and wondering whether it will permanently eliminate you from that. And uh, for either one of those reasons, I just want you to know and understand uh, that Jesus loves people. He has a plan for their life. He's working with them. He, he personally experienced depression, anxiety. He was able to work through that. People in the Bible pray through these things. Um, that nobody can sin their way out of heaven, just like you can't not sin your way into heaven. Um, but if you're contemplating doing that type of thing, that's not what God wants for you. He's not done with you yet. Uh, don't. Uh, one of the lies that people in that situation start to think is, this will be most loving to the people around me is if I'm not here, and that's just not true. Hmm. And I hope you hear that. 
that it is not loving the people around you to take yourself out of here. Uh, and as real as it might feel that that's the case, it's just not true. And I hope you reach out to someone and, and maybe it's one of us, maybe it's someone else at the church, maybe it's uh, a hotline, um, but God's not done with you yet. Hmm. But it's only you have the power to decide if you live or die. And Jesus is not going to withhold his grace on the basis of a sinful choice you make. I hope you understand that. All right, next question. Where do we go when we die? Will we rise from the grave when Jesus comes back, or are the dead either in heaven or hell now? Um, yeah, where do you go when you die? It depends. Um, for Christians, uh, we have the promise from Philippians 1, uh, where Paul says to, you know, I don't know if I'm going to, if I'm going to be able to stay alive or if I'm going to be killed, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain because I'll get to be with Jesus. Uh, Jesus on the cross said to the thief next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so um, Christians, people who believe in Christ in all the ways that Seth explained earlier, uh, go to be in the presence of the Lord. Our bodies are buried or cremated or whatever happens to them and our souls go to be with the Lord until the, the resurrection. And at the resurrection... Uh, Christ returns and our bodies are raised and uh, we get to enter into eternal life on the new heavens and the new earth in a new resurrected body where our souls and our bodies are united. Um, and so the future is not life off on heaven, but actually heaven on earth and us living there forever. Um, Seth, would you talk about the flip side of that? Yeah, those who uh, are die separated from the Lord, Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed once for man to die, then comes judgment. And so, whereas the believer goes into paradise or presence of the Lord, the unbeliever is judged and put into hell. And that hell is, um, hell is the word Gehenna, which means uh, kind of the place outside the kingdom, like the place of suffering, gnashing of teeth. Uh, it most meaningfully refers to separation from God because you're outside the camp, like uh, you're away from. And so hell is ultimately uh, the separation from the blessed presence of God. Is that judgment after the resurrection or is that immediate after you die? I think it's immediate after you die and then your believers are judged twice. And then what? Say, what did you say? I see that there's a great white throne that we're judged in front of at the, in the book of Revelation where there's like your first judge on the basis of covering the blood of the lamb or not, then there's a judgment on the basis of um, fidelity after that fact or not. So is that what you're looking for? Luke? Yeah, okay. great. All right, let's do one more. Do we have one more? Are there future church plants planned within Redemption Arizona? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, that's a fun one to end on. So uh, the answer is yes. Um, there are some church planters in the, in the pipeline um, to plant redemption congregations as well as uh, other daughter congregations. So uh, John Pope um, is a guy who's been a pastoral resident. Many of you saw him in the video we played a few weeks ago featuring interns and residents. Uh, he's been here for a few years and we're hoping in the next year or two to be able to send him out uh, to plant probably a daughter church of redemption. It won't be a redemption congregation, but there will hopefully be a lot of affiliation and connection. And so um, we hope that that will happen. We don't have any specific plans to announce at this point, but uh, that would be something that would be happening um, here out of Redemption Gateway. In Redemption, Arizona as a whole, we have a guy, uh, Juan Chavez, who many of you met last year. He was here and part of the Christmas offering. Um, and uh, he's been doing a ministry in South Phoenix called AZ Reach, where they go into high schools and basically have 
all this freedom to develop relationships and share the gospel with lots of students. And now he wants to start a church in South Phoenix that will make it where all their families can go to that as well. So uh, we're hoping that he will plant uh, probably late 23 or maybe early 24. Um, and then I'm going in January in a couple weeks. I'm going to, uh, today's, we're in January. Holy smokers. We're in January. I'm going in a couple weeks to uh, go with uh, one of the, with a, a pastor from one of our other congregations who's being assessed as a church planter and is trying to determine if that's part of his path and part of his future. Um, you may not know this, but I also get uh, the privilege of leading a, a cohort of about six to 12 uh, church planters from around the city, uh, some of whom are people who are kicking the tires from within redemption and some of whom are just planting churches that aren't affiliated at all with redemption. We get to encourage and support and and bless them. So, yeah. So I think there's uh, I think there's some exciting things to come, and uh, we'll see we'll see what the Lord does with that. So, uh, well, hey, uh, let's pray. Uh, thank you for your uh, questions and your attention. Let's let's pray together. Lord, the verse that's just coming to my mind right now is um, where Jesus said that uh, He knows every hair on our heads. And uh, that if a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without the Lord noticing of how much greater value are we than a sparrow. And so thank you that you know our hurts. Thank you, know that, thank you that you know the things that make it hard to trust you. Thank you that you're with us even in the moments when we think maybe if we weren't around it'd be better. Uh, Lord, thank you that in the hard intellectual questions and even more in the hard uh, experiential questions that you're with us. And Lord, we want to we wanna hold on to you. But Lord, we, uh, we take ultimate rest in knowing that you hold on to us. And so God, hold on to us this year, please. Sustain us. Give us endurance. Give us grit. Give us faith. Give us courage. Give us a heart that can weather storms. And God, do in us and through us the kinds of things that only you can do. Now, that's our prayer for this year. Would you uh, glorify yourself in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.